We again are in awe today. And the fact that you became one of us, that you were born on this earth, you lived, you loved, you died, you were resurrected. And it's because of that understanding of, of what you've done and who you are that we can have this relationship with the living God. And we thank you that you did that for us, every individual. And that we can go into 2016 with no fear, knowing that you are with us, no matter what we face, that the peace of God that passes comprehension, the person of, the, of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of us. Emmanuel, Jesus with us, God with us. And I pray today, Lord, that you would take the word of God, the living word, and you would transform us. Father, let us see something new today. And that we would leave different because we were here in your presence and heard from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. It was 35 days, 35 years ago today that Judy and I were married. And uh, the um, life transformed ever since then. We, um, we do Christmas like I never did before, and uh, decorations and things like that. Christmas lasts decoration-wise. I don't know how many of you. Uh, how many of you take your decorations down before New Year's? How many of you leave them up past New Year's? How many of you have to have them down by Valentine's Day? <laughs> That's that kind of thing. Right, just, just so you know, we took, a, we took a poll up in the balcony with the tech crew this morning, and it was voted three to one to leave the Christmas decorations one more week. So these will be here next week. So is everybody happy with that? Yes. Okay, good. Just wanted, just wanted to check and see. Tests, those crazy tests. Who needs them? Who wants them? And who likes them? Do you remember those tests you took in high school, the, the science tests, trying to remember protoplasm and the characteristics of static electricity? Or the history tests, trying to remember which ocean, which ship, which explorer, his country of origin, and what year was it anyway? And who cares about the year? <laughs> or the English tests. I knew I'd get an amen for that. The, the, the English test, the essay question that says, describe the author's primary driving force behind the three secondary characters and what each character represented to the imaginary friend who didn't exist in his mind but did in yours. Did you follow that? <laughs> or the geography test. If the temperature at the North Pole is minus 67 degrees, Fahrenheit, and the temperature at the Antarctica is plus three degrees Fahrenheit, and the water temperature of the Mediterranean Sea is 72 degrees, is it hotter in the summer or in the country? <laughs> and then my favorite, the math story problems. If you have four oranges that weigh seven ounces each, and eight apples that are red, how many Maytag washing machines are sold each year in Atlanta? And his answer in first service was? Purple. Purple, right, okay. 
tests, you, you probably took the same math story problems that I did. Tests, we've all experienced tests. And we have all had varying degrees of success or failure. Tests of knowledge, tests of strength, you know the question, how many pull-ups could you do in the seventh grade? That was the question. The tests of speed or endurance or tests of commitment. Those crazy tests, I never did like tests. Some call them trials, some call them tests, but most are challenging and everyone require a response of some sort. Those crazy tests. Well, has God ever given you a test? Not a math, science, or an English test, but a test of faith or a test of character, test of commitment. As we look back on our life, we examine our report card. Every one of us have a different report card or a file, it's all different. A test file or perhaps a trial file. Those crazy tests. Well, today we're going to look at the, a story in the Old Testament about a test. It's a man named Abraham, and God placed an enormous test in front of him. And I want us to look at how did he respond, how did he pass this test, and what can we learn from his experience. Let's turn to Genesis 22. It'll also be on the PowerPoint in front of you, but Genesis 22, and we're going to read the first 14 verses. Genesis 22, 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Talk about a test, an incredible story. Most of us will not experience a test of this caliber, this kind of extreme. But God does test us. And the question is, how do we handle those tests, which we would say those are crazy tests? How to pass God's test. We're going to look at some principles. 
The first way to pass God's tests has to do with listening. Number one, listen. God calls Abraham, and Abraham recognizes God's voice. And if God is going to test us, it's crucial to recognize his voice. God was going to command Abraham to do something absolutely incomprehensible. He had to know it was God who was talking to him. I've spoken with many Christians over the years who say they've never heard the voice of God. Just never heard the voice of God. And I'm not talking about some spooky out-of-body experience, an ecstatic emotional experience of some sort, not even an audible voice. I'm speaking about an awareness of the presence of God, of his word, his person, and his spirit bearing witness with our spirit, that voice that speaks to us. Hearing the voice of God is a, is a sermon series in itself. We don't have time this morning. But I want to say today that God does speak to us today. This has to do with the voice of God. Now, how do we know it's God speaking, or it's not just the bad pizza I ate the night before? Is it God's voice, or is it my voice? Is it God's voice or someone else claiming to speak for God? We must know that it's God speaking, and what is he saying to us? Now, Abraham didn't have the scriptures back then. We, today, we always have the word of God to measure the message. God will never contradict himself. He's not going to tell you to do something that is against what he said and revealed in his written word. But everything isn't covered in the written word. Everything is, that we need is there, but sometimes God speaks to us directly. There are a lot of obstacles that keep us from hearing God's word. We wonder, you know, why is my hearing not doing so well? Why am I not hearing the voice of God? Well, what keeps us from hearing? First of all, distractions. Number one, distractions. Distractions compete with the voice of God. Have you ever tried to listen to someone in a room full of people? Or you're in a noisy restaurant, there's so much noise going on that you just can't hardly hear the person speaking in front of you. Or trying to speak intelligently on the phone when your two-year-old is screaming because your four-year-old just put gum in her hair. You know, those, those kinds of things distract us from being able to hear. They divert our attention. We can't concentrate. And we have distractions keeping us from hearing the voice of God. And then there, there, there's noise. Our culture is inundated by noise. And I'm not talking just about traffic noise or construction noise or physical noise. But there is a lot of noise around us. There are voices of the media, voices of television, competing messages that drown out the voice of God. Those voices are so loud we can't hear what God is saying. And then there's something called distance, number three. Have you ever had someone yell something to you across a parking lot or across a soccer field or something and it kind of got lost in the wind you can't, you, I don't know what they said? Well, sometimes we're so far from God, we're so distant from God that he wants to say something to us and it, gets, it kind of gets lost because it's so distant. Or maybe it's time. Maybe it's been a long time since you've heard the voice of God. Every so often I'll receive a phone call from someone who will not identify themselves. I'm not talking about telemarketers. I'm talking about somebody I know I should know. I vaguely remember the voice, but it's been a long time since I've heard that voice, and maybe it's been several years. And they usually call and they say, guess who? I hate it when they do that. Guess who? Don't ever do that to me, please. <laughs> say, guess who? Or, or this is a voice from your past, you know. 
And the, the older you get, the more voices there are from the past. What do you do? Other people, they call me and I instantly recognize their voice because I just talked to them earlier that day or, or last week or just a couple days ago and I, I, it's like continuing that conversation. When God speaks to you, do you instantly recognize his voice or has it been a long time since you've heard his voice so you don't realize who it is? These are different things that keep us from hearing the, the voice of God. Now, where are you? Do you have distractions and noise and distance? Are you listening to God, listening for his voice? Do you spend enough time in God's word to be able to evaluate what you hear? Absolutely critical when we're trying to hear the voice of God to be in the word of God to hear it. It's very important to recognize God's voice because following God's voice comes a command the command of God, letter B. Listening to the voice of God, listening to the command of God. What is the command? Verse two, he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now this command must have been totally incomprehensible to Abraham. Who could possibly figure this out? I can imagine going through his mind, God, let me get this straight. I waited until it was impossible to have children. I was 100, Sarah was 90. We finally had a baby, and this child is the promise of God to carry forth his name and to bless all the nations, and you want me to kill him? Seriously? You have got to be kidding. A command. God, this is the son I waited for, I dreamed about, my only son, the one that I love. When God speaks to us, it doesn't always makes sense. In fact, quite often it doesn't make sense at all. But know this, God will test us in our area of greatest affection. God will test us in our areas of greatest affection. This was Abraham's test, his area of greatest affection. So what, what is your area of greatest affection? There's nothing wrong with loving someone or something passionately. Just realize that God may give you a test in that area, a greatest affection. See, some people think God is like a recreational director on a cruise ship. His job is to give everybody a good time and spare no expense, and life is easy. Why would God test Abraham? Why would God test me? We tend to avoid tests. Say, God, give me a smooth life and an easy existence. You know I hate tests. Aren't tests a sign of satanic attack? Well, not in this case it wasn't. Well, God tested Abraham, and God's going to test us. The first way to pass is listen. Listen to God's voice and his command, remembering that God will likely test us in our area of greatest affection. Secondly, second way to pass the test is to obey. Number two, obey. Verse three, he obeyed. You know, I don't know about you, I, I always hated that word growing up. I heard it all the time when I was a kid. I'd say, why? And they'd say, just obey. Have a good attitude about it. To wait to obey is to disobey. My kids can, can say, I said that many times. To wait to obey is to disobey. And they, you know, they quote that to me once in a while, and I go, wow. <laughs> it's amazing. Obedience. And now, if anyone would have had a good reason not to obey God, Abraham did. 
He could have given a thousand reasons not to do what God told him to do, and we could probably throw in some for good measure. But he didn't. In a radical test of obedience, Abraham passed this test because he obeyed. He said, yes, God, I don't understand, but I'll obey it. Please don't put this in the same category as people that go out and say, God told me to shoot people or whatever. This, that's, a, that's a whole different thing. This is a case where God told him something specific to do. Obedience. You know, we live in a culture of autonomy and independence. I'm going to do it my way. I'll decide which parts of God's word I'm going to obey. I'll, I'll take this, this part of the Bible and that part of the Bible I'm just going to take. It's kind of a loose-leaf Bible. I just throw out what I don't like. I'll do it my way. There's a great illustration of that kind of spirit in the Old Testament. Um, the guy's name was Jonah. Okay, you got, everybody knows about Jonah. Jonah heard God's voice. He knew it was God's voice. Then he decided he didn't like God's command, so he went his own way. Then came the perfect storm, and he confessed and was thrown overboard, and he's swallowed by this big fish. And Jonah found himself surrounded for the first time by something he never had. Guts. <laughs> finally, sorry, finally, he obeyed. Now, there are three ways we can obey. Three ways we can obey. Partial obedience, late obedience, or full obedience. And the only way to pass God's test is full, immediate obedience. Over the last 30 years of ministry, I've had numbers of people who have come to me for seeking counsel, for direction, usually desiring God's direction and blessing on their upcoming marriage. And sometimes it's an unbeliever wanting to marry a believer. Or just as common, trying to decide if they should get married and they're presently living together or sleeping together. Well, the Bible gives very clear direction, very clear direction on marriage to an unbeliever or living together before marriage. Both are called sin, sin. And Hollywood pumps out movie after movie, cute romantic comedies and sitcom after sitcom, setting the standard, the norm, the practice of living together outside of marriage. And God wants obedience. The Bible, is, you don't have to ask questions. God wants obedience. The Bible is very clear on those kinds of things. And I've told each couple seeking God's direction, you want to find out whether you should get married. You cannot expect to discover the hidden will of God if you are disobeying the revealed will of God. Let me repeat that. Very important. You cannot expect to discover the hidden will of God if you are disobeying the revealed will of God. If the word of God lays out a clear principle, a clear directive, and we're in violation of that, don't try to find his will on it. It's already been said to you. Sometimes we wonder why life is devastating and we just continue and keep on disobeying God. Question is, is there an area in your life that God is calling you to obedience today? And is it one of those areas of great affection? That's the question. The third way to pass God's test, worship, worship. In verse five, it says, he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, then we will come back to you. We'll come back to that in a moment, but note that Abraham and Isaac had one goal. One goal, that was to worship God. Worship God. Now, worship is a broad, large subject, but suffice it to say that worship is God 
centered. When we come together and, and participate in a worship service, it's not about us, it's not about me, it's not about this, it's not about decoration, it's about God. We are here to worship God, to focus on God. It's worship-centered, centered on God. When our focus and our eyes and our lives are turned towards our Heavenly Father in true worship, His person and His presence eclipses everything else around us. And as we worship, we're absorbed with God's love, His power, His majesty, His holiness, His mercy and grace. And we just can't see anything else, especially our own circumstances or petty gripes. Because we're here to worship God. Everything else, when, when I pray on occasion, I say, God, that we would see you and you would be so big in our understanding that all the things that we carried in with us would shrink in comparison. Measuring our obstacle or our tests, not against our power and strength, but against God's power and his majesty and how big he is. Measure it against God. See who wins. Worship. We can't see anything else. In 2009, I had the opportunity to travel to Scotland to an area of the country called the Isle of Lewis, which is part of the Hebrides Islands off the west coast. And this island was the site of the 1949 to 1953 revival that absolutely swept the island with God's presence. We interviewed and did a video project of interviewing people now in their 70s and 80s who had come to faith in Jesus Christ as 16 and 17 year olds, as teenagers. And their experience with the presence of God and worshiping God in that revival was absolutely astounding. It was as fresh in their mind today as it was when it happened back in 1949 to 53. And we asked them, what was was the atmosphere like? What was it like? And one woman said, there was a canopy of God consciousness over the entire island. There was a canopy of God consciousness over the entire island. This sense of God's presence. And they worshipped. They worshipped. There was nothing else. This God consciousness. And the question is, when is the last time there was a canopy of God consciousness over Eau Claire or, or Chippewa Falls or the Chippewa Valley? A canopy of God consciousness where all people just have to, you have to worship. His presence is so strong. That's what America needs, is a canopy of God consciousness. We're looking at politics and elections, and you know what? That's all important to some degree, but that's not the answer. It's not the answer to our ills. That's not the answer to the problems of America. The answer is a canopy of God consciousness and revival. Worship. Absorbed in worship. Now, most of us, when we're in the middle of a test, are so focused on me, on my feelings, my problem, my test, poor me, that we can't focus outward. Worship is by focusing on God, walking by faith but not by sight. That is when, that is when we win over our test. Out of worship flows number four, trust. Trust. In verse five, there there are two statements that Abraham makes here. It's, It's interesting. In verse five, he says, we, speaking of he and Isaac, we will worship, then we will come back to you. 
And verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You wonder, what was going on in his mind? We get a glimpse into the thinking of, of Abraham by looking at Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, the, the, the faith, faith chapter, Hebrews 11, and um, it, it's an amazing insight that the, book of he, the writer of Hebrews has for all of us when he talks about Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, when he says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham had two seemingly contradictory messages from God. And his trust in God was so deep and so profound that he carried both of them out without personal understanding. He didn't understand, how can, how can this be? And his reasoning was, if God wants me to do this, he can raise the dead. Totally, it's through this son that the promises are coming. You know, it just, it just did not make sense. But he trusted in God. Abraham didn't know how. He didn't know why. He didn't know where. He didn't know when. He only knew who. God. God. Only out of that intimate walk with Jesus, listening, obeying, worshiping, can that kind of trust develop. How far can you trust God? How far can you trust God? In what you can rationalize? You can figure it out. In what you can visualize, you can see it. In what you can verbalize, in other words, you can express it. Or in what you can actualize, what you can actually make happen. How far can you trust God? A little girl, age six, was told by her mother not to stick her finger in a lamp socket because electricity could hurt her. Then she dropped a cookie on the floor and her mom told her to throw it in the garbage because it had germs on it. Her six-year-old exclaimed, electricity, germs, and Jesus. That's all I hear about around here, and I haven't seen one of them yet. <laughs> How far can you trust? Do you have to see it? Or do you believe without seeing? How far can you trust Jesus? As long as it's between, it's between God and me, it's fine. But throw in a boss or throw in an unbelieving spouse or secular judge, I can't trust God. When you throw in the government or the courts or the IRS or the military or a teacher's union, then I can't trust him. Or a coach or a teacher or a college professor. I trust God as long as I have direct input and control over the situation, but throw in other people into the equation and I don't trust God anymore. God, I trust you. I don't trust, it's people I don't trust. The question is, is God sovereign still, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the test is God still sovereign? Is he in control? Stuart Briscoe writes this, faith is not lived out in a vacuum. It operates in the tensions of life, often demonstrates itself more fully by its responses to the furnace of affliction than the warm, shallow waters of ease and prosperity. I think I have that in your notes. Furnace of affliction warm shallows of ease and prosperity. He goes on to say, faith is matured through the experience of stressful testing in much the same way that the cardiovascular system is strengthened through exercise and muscles are developed by pumping iron. 
resistance exercise. There's a book entitled A View from the Zoo. A View from the Zoo, written by Gary Richmond. And he describes the birth of a giraffe. I want to share that with you. I think it's a great illustration. This is a baby giraffe. The first things to emerge are the baby giraffe's front hooves and head. A few minutes later, the plucky newborn calf is hurtled forth and falls 10 feet and lands on its back. Great start. Within seconds, he rolls to an upright position with his legs tucked under his body. And from this position, he considers the world for the very first time and shakes off the last vestiges of the birthing fluid from his eyes and ears. The mother giraffe lowers her head long enough to take a quick look. Then she positions herself directly over her calf. She waits for about a minute. Then she does the most unreasonable thing. She swings her long, pendulous leg outward and kicks her baby so that it is sent sprawling head over heels. When it doesn't get up, the violent process is repeated over and over again. The struggle to rise is momentous. Momentous. As the baby calf grows tired, the mother kicks it again to stimulate its efforts. Finally, the calf stands for the first time on its wobbly legs. Then the mother does the most remarkable thing. She kicks it off its feet again. Why? She wants it to remember how it got up. In the wild, baby giraffes must be able to get up as quickly as possible in order to stay with the herd where there's safety. See, lions, hyenas, leopards, and wild hunting dogs all enjoy eating young giraffes, and they get them if the mother didn't teach her calf to get up quickly and get with it. Sound like a bad week? A tough life? Say, I had a week like that, yeah. Sometimes it seems like we just passed the tough test, and bam, we get knocked down again. God wants us to remember how we got up and how important it is to stay close to God and stay close to community. We all experience tough times, tests. How we respond to those tests many times will determine the outcome. We can't control the tests. We can only control our response to the tests. Abraham's response, trust. The final way to pass God's tests, and there are others, just do it. Just do it. Take action. Takes action. Abraham literally laid everything dear to him on the altar, and he was give it, willing to give it up. The proof was in his action. He took actions on it. And when God stopped him and said, now I know that you fear God. Abraham feared and revered God above everyone else, and he loved him more than his most precious possession. The fear of God is sadly lacking in the American church today. We're more concerned about what people think, what other people believe. It's political correctness run amok. And yes, we need to be sensitive to others' ideas and cultures and religious beliefs, but we must never fear man above God. Why did God have to test Abraham? Didn't God know all things? Didn't he know the future? Didn't he already know that Abraham would pass the test? Yes, he did. But the process of testing accomplishes some things. And I'm, I'm just going to look at four. 
Four reasons that God tests us. Number one, to purify us. Tests burn up impurities. Gold is refined by intense heat, and diamonds are formed by intense pressure. Tests bring heat and pressure on us to remove the non-essential, wasteful elements in our life. Purify us. Secondly, it proves our faith. Prove our faith. How do you know your faith works? How do, you, how do people around us know that our faith works? You take it for a spin. Take it for a spin. The car manufacturer says, my car will go zero to 60 in 6.5 seconds. The speedometer goes up to 140 miles per hour. Officer, I was just tr- testing my car. <laughs> Take your faith for a spin instead. Take your faith for a spin. Tests produce a viable, visible proof of our commitment to trust and obedience. It proves that our faith works, that God answers prayer. It works. Number three, it strengthens us. Resistance always builds strength. Those of you who lifted weights or or pushed the envelope in any way, you know that when you have more resistance, your strength builds. Two football teams were competing. The Swedes got mad and quit. Three plays later, the Norwegians scored. Come on, Packer fans, you gotta get it, okay. I just threw that in just to, yeah. I'm I'm Norwegian, so I make fun of Norwegians. I hope that's okay. Number four, tests reveal God's character. Who is this God? How do we get to know him? The tests are not for God. The tests are for us. When you take a math test, it's to let you know what skills and learning you have acquired. The math teacher doesn't need the test. I need it. God doesn't need the test. We do. Tests don't teach God about us, they teach us about God. What did Abraham learn? What did Abraham learn about God? Verse 14 said, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh literally means the Lord sees. And we tend to think of Jehovah Jireh when we talk about the Lord will provide. We tend to think about that in economic senses where where somehow he's gonna take care of our physical needs and, and it can include that, but this is really about the substitutionary atonement, about the ram that was sacrificed in the place of his son. This was a picture of Jesus who was coming and he was going to die in our place just like the ram died instead of his son. A picture. Jehovah Jireh. Our tests, as tough as they are, ultimately show us that God will provide. He'll provide. In the ultimate sense, God provided Jesus, his only son, as a sacrifice for our sins. So how do we pass God's test? Listen, obey, worship, trust, and take action. God tests us in our areas of greatest affection. Those crazy tests. What tests are you facing in 2016? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us a real-world example of someone who wrestled with a test. We thank you, Lord, that he didn't shrink from it, but he carried it out and did exactly what you called him to do. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we face 2016, 
Some people are finishing the year on a test. Some people are going to be entering a test. Lord, whatever it is, I just pray that you will help us to focus on you and understand what you are accomplishing in and through these times in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we, as we sing, Oh, come all ye faithful. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.